Hello and welcome to Chatting, a podcast where people chat about how they learn and use English. My name is Sam, I'm a CELTA teacher and a performer and I have a particular interest in pronunciation and expression. In each episode, non-native and native speakers will chat about their experiences with English, share their advice and, at the end, I'll give some pronunciation tips for you to take away and practice. So, ready? Let's get chatting. This episode, I'm chatting with Lucy. Lucy is from the southeast of England, an area we call the home counties, and she's a neuroscientist, so she can tell us about how the brain works. We were able to meet in person and enjoy a nice cup of tea together, jasmine, I think, which was lovely. But just a quick warning, the creaking you can hear at the beginning of our chat was my old dining room table. We chatted about not pronouncing or dropping the letter T, Cockney rhyming slang and your mirror neurons, how mirroring other people, so doing what they do, can help you learn a language. But I started by asking Lucy to tell me a little bit about herself. Okay, so my name's Lucy. I'm a neuroscientist. I grew up in the um, home counties in the UK and I've lived in three or four different countries. The home counties in the south of England, your accent and the way you speak English then, what does that say about you? I think that because the UK has very um, well-known and defined regional accents, you can definitely tell that I grew up in that region from the way I speak. Mm-hmm. But you might not be able to tell whether I grew up in, say, Surrey, Kent, Hampshire or London. Mm-hmm. So it's reasonably neutral. Right. And you can also tell, I guess, from my choice of vocabulary uh-huh. that there's, there, there are less regional colloquialisms. Um, and I think people probably make some assumptions about you on the basis of your accent if you're in the UK but if you're outside of the UK um, I think the only comment people have made about my accent is that it's perhaps been slightly easier for them to understand than some of our regional accents. Why do you think it's easier? Perhaps it's closer to the style of accent used in language learning materials. Sure. Perhaps also I speak a little bit more slowly than some of the regional um, accent holders mm-hmm. who have different, a different pace of language sometimes, depending on where they're from. And maybe living overseas has also helped me modulate it a little bit to make it clearer. So about colloquialisms then, do mm. you have any specific to your region that you think to yourself, oh, I say that because I'm from this part of the country? Mm. <laughs> there are occasions where I find myself saying mate <laughs> which is a very London thing and it in some ways it started off as an ironic uh, turn of phrase especially because my dad is a cockney uh-huh. um, and then sometimes when I'm overseas it's quite comforting for me to bring in the colloquialisms from my home my home location it, it can be a way to add emphasis when you're not consciously thinking about what you're saying maybe mm-hmm. you're carried away maybe you're having an argument or maybe you're driving you're like oh get out of the way mate you know it gives you a way to express yourself which is more visceral yes you're not 
making calculated decisions about how your language comes across. Yeah, it's funny that you say mate in a sort of cockney way with the team and don't say in your lovely accent say mate. Mate, get out of the way mate. And I hate, I hate that. Mm. I hate that I drop T's. Like I hate, like hate that I drop T's. Why? Why do you hate it? Because I know it's incorrect to do it. Is it? But it's typical of where I grew up. Why is it incorrect? I think when I was at school, when I went to primary school and secondary school, for a certain number of years we had elocution lessons. Oh. And we actually had exams. So if I had done that in front of a teacher, I, I was made aware that that was an improper habit, if you like. It was a naughty thing to do. But now I'm not at school, nobody's correcting me. Right. <laughs> so the bad habits have more time to get I don't know, brain. I would argue that it's not necessarily incorrect. You know, it'll all be to do with where the T, the previous T links to the next word and stuff like that. You yes, know, so. exactly. Yeah. And it's it, and it's unnatural in the flow of conversation mm. to speak English perfectly all the time. Sure. Like, I'm probably enunciating better now because I'm aware there's a microphone in front of me <laughs> and we're talking about the English language. <laughs> but if I'm talking with my mum, there'll be lots of regional things I must be doing mm. that I'm just not aware of. <laughs> so you said your dad is a Cockney, yes. but is his yeah. accent very thick or does he speak yes. in Cockney rhyming slang? Like? He does use a bit of rhyming slang, but not the typical things you would imagine. Okay. Um, he So one of the things I've noticed with my father, his accent is quite strong, but it has become milder as he's aged because okay. he's living in Surrey, so he's not around so many people who might mirror it. Mm. Um, and my mother is very well-spoken. So perhaps she's sort of tried to teach him some better habits, I don't know, by her estimation. Um, and he tended to use rhyming slang, a, a bit like me with mate, when he was trying to denigrate, make fun of, or, or when he got annoyed. Right. So uh, I remember he um, <laughs> made fun of a neighbour who used to wear a wig, a toupee, right. and he kept referring to it as a syrup. So that would be an example where and he, I don't know if he was being deliberately humorous yeah. per se, just yeah. in his mind, when he learned the term yeah. for a wig, it was a syrup right. when he was a child. Yeah. Everyone referred to it as a syrup. Yeah. What is the, the rhyming slang for that? Then? So syrup, syrup of figs, syrup of figs. wigs. Yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't say apples and pears or any of the cliched right. things. It tends to be when you're gossiping about somebody and you don't want them to know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting thing about native English speakers. Sometimes using slang or rhyming slang or another term almost takes the sting out. You feel less rude oh, yeah. for saying it. Yes. And of course, anyone who's tried to learn English as a foreign language will be aware of how Brits use language to some people's minds, uh, they, they think it's passive aggressive, but to us, we think we're being courteous yes. sometimes. So there's also an element of that, maybe. That's definitely true. So you've moved around and lived in different countries. Your work has taken you around. Have you noticed any changes in your English as you've moved around? Has it been easier to communicate in some countries other than other countries, or how do you find it? That's a good question. I would say that because the first place I lived outside the UK for a significant amount of time was the Middle East. Uh -huh. And many of the um, immigrants to the Middle East are uh, American or speaking American English. Mm -hmm. So I realised quite early on in that region specifically that there were terms that I thought were 
normal in British English that Americanized English speakers don't actually understand ah. or that might be confusing. Okay. Like, for example, put that in the bin, turn on the tap. Right. Um, regular. With, does regular mean something's normal, usual, you know, common or garden? Or does regular mean in terms of temporality, it happens at a set schedule all the time? Mm-hmm. That word is understood, but there are nuances. I realised that I had to do away with terms like bin or rubbish, mm-hmm. uh, do away with terms like tap, mm-hmm. and, and start using more internationally recognisable alternatives like trash, okay. because there's no room for error. If I say to someone anywhere in the world, that needs to go in the trash, or I'm going to put this in the trash, th- there's no way someone can misunderstand. So that forever changed my English. Okay. And when you live in a country where the grammar and the syntax is different in the native language, which you can't help to pick up, mm-hmm. you do start to consider your own language in a way that it naturally becomes more sympathetic to non-native speakers. So for an example would be, you know, I lived with Arabic speakers for a long time. An example would be, what you do? If I were thinking about it, I would say, what are you up to? But there's probably many times where I'd turn to an Arabic speaker and say, oh, what you do? Which we know is incorrect English, but it is still understood, and it has the efficiency of Arabic. Arabic's a much more efficient language. Uh So you do find yourself becoming more sympathetic because it makes everyone happier if you can streamline your language to be understood. Do you find that the same thing happens within your work then, that you're streamlining the English that you use, because obviously working within a scientific field, yes, is it just that science has its language and we all understand that and nothing changes, or is that you have to sort of adapt so that everybody understands? That's incredibly uh, incisive. There's a lot of scientific language that is common across all languages, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is that the majority of scientific research is published in English, and this is a bias that negatively affects all kinds of pockets of talent in the scientific world, all over the globe. So because science um, publications favour English, Mm -hmm. somewhat unfairly, most scientific language that's very specific in the area of neuroscience has an English root. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that in Nordic languages, in Arabic, in all kinds of languages I've come across, there's there's an English root, because some of these terms are new. So... Business English, for me as a scientist, is far easier than uh, conversational English to find understanding across different cultures and backgrounds. Conversational English, if I walked into a lab somewhere overseas, is not necessarily easily understood, but all the scientific terms will be. So people have got it right when it comes to work and business. We're sort of finding a an international language that we all understand, English that is. What tips would you give someone if they're trying to improve their conversational English? For me, as someone who's a very poor language learner... (laughs) No. um, (laughs) No, I really am. Um, I don't have a gift for languages, but there are techniques I found helped me. And one of them is talk about household items a lot so that when you need to refer to something in the home, you can start building sentences in the other language Mm -hmm. with the aid of someone else, Mm -hmm. but also exclude your home language. So a bit like a total immersion, but what I used to do was only exclude one word a day if I was feeling very confident, three words a day. So instead of using the word for bed, 
Say you're in Finland and the word for bed is sangu. Instead of using the word bed, just forget it from your vocabulary. It's now sangu. There, there is no other word for it. You're never going to forget your home language. You don't need to make a mental note of it and use it to remember it anymore. Mm. Not now that you're an adult. No. So um, you can just get rid of it. You just park it and bring in a new word or three words every day because I find that's very digestible. Okay. And I find habit seems to reinforce. And that's one thing that we know from looking at the brain. If you build a habit, if you keep doing it, even when it feels impossible, do it badly. Mm. By all means, make a mess of it. <laughs> but keep doing it. Yeah. Because just like when you were a baby and you learned to walk, or just like when you got on a bicycle, you've got to, you've got to say... I'm not going to invest my ego in being good at this. I'm just going to do it. And then you will be good at it yeah. before you even realise it. Give it a month, you'll be good at it. Okay. The more you say the word, the better your pronunciation will get. So that would be it. Replace your usual vocabulary, one to three words a day, and just keep practising. And in your head, don't call it a bed anymore. Or I suppose in this case, switch your normal word for bed for bed. Yes, yes. So if you're a, if you're listening to this and you're a, you're a non-native English speaker and you're thinking about making your bed, when you write that little note in your phone or on your calendar, write it in English. Make the bed, and the more you repeat it and read it and say it out loud to yourself, the easier it will get. I think another tip is if you live with people, mm. ask them to help you in this and do this together. Because if you're using, you have to use your mirror neurons to learn speech as a baby. So it makes sense that you must use mirror neur neurons to learn anything as an adult. The way the brain does it, you have to have other people around you. Okay. Nothing in life can be learned alone. So if you're not living with people who will do this with you, mm -hmm. you've got to get somewhere online, on Reddit, on Twitter, subscribe to foreign Twitter accounts, read the tweets, do the translation, yeah, by all means, go back and untranslate it and look at it again and just get familiar with strings of words or familiar with one or two words every day. But you need other people to mirror that back at you to engage the mirror neurons yeah. to okay. learn. So mirroring and repetition. Yes, absolutely. Like you would learn a language as a baby. That's how I looked at it. How would I have learned a language as a baby? I didn't just pop out and say, <laughs> mother, can you pass me the rice pudding? I had to learn rice Pudding, yeah. please, mum, dad, spoon, me, you. Yeah. It's, language is all about relating to others. It's your currency in expressing thought. So one of the things that you learn as a clinical psychologist early on, just because you feel you said something doesn't mean other people understood that same meaning. Right. So when you think about that in terms of everything you do, learning to walk down the street without bumping into people learning to speak a language mm. it's it's the connection between you and others so it's not possible to learn without others i think that's beautiful how fabulous yes <laughs> oh i should i say i should say mate that was amazing yeah, mate <laughs> check out my syrup <laughs>
it, it. Technically, the English T comes when the front of the tongue hits the roof or top of your mouth, a little away from your top teeth. So you produce a sound like a symbol T, t, t. This sound is sometimes described as splashy, a bit wet, as a T in other languages sounds more like a D, d, d. So, sound-wise, be more like a symbol in English. T, 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 t. Now, different parts of the English-speaking world will have different habits when it comes to dropping or not pronouncing T's. For example, the words important and certainty in some places are important and certainty and in other places are important and certainty. This is called T-glottalisation but let's not worry about that. Don't listen to people on social media who tell you stop pronouncing the T in English. There is no one rule, both options are correct and learners should be aware. But here I want to identify three main times when you see a T and you don't need to pronounce it. First, the verb to listen. Why is there a T? English spelling can be really tricky sometimes. Nowhere in the English-speaking world, I think, says listen, so never say this T. Try this sentence. I listen to music when I cook. Next, the modal verb must in the negative is must not. When we say both words, we only tend to say the T of not, so must not. Even more often though, these words are contracted, so must and not, two words, become mustn't, one word. When we write this word, it looks like we should say mustn't, because it has two T's, but we only sound one, mustn't. Try this sentence. You mustn't enter that room today. Finally, when you have two words in a sentence where word one ends with a t and word two begins with a t, we tend to only use one t. Try this sentence. Don't try this at home. So sometimes we speak slowly for emphasis, maybe when we are very angry or very happy and we sound every word. So if I wanted to be very clear, maybe I would say don't try this at home and sound the t's of don't and try. But in everyday speech, we only use one t. So thinking about which T's are important in a sentence can help you find an easier way to link your words and make them flow more naturally. Ah, but hang on. What about that word? O-F-T-E-N. T or no T? Do you often read books or do you often read books? The answer is, they're both fine. And I think I use both. Anyway, over to you to practice. 
So there we are. The transcript of this episode is available to read on the podcast's webpage, so take a look. Join me next time for more pronunciation and grammar tips, more advice, and most importantly, more chatting. My thanks again to Lucy, and for her music, a massive thanks to the wonderful Mara Carlisle. Bye for now. Thank you.